All right. How many of you felt like it was going to go the other way? It's funny, isn't it? Okay, I, do, a little, do a little rewind from your week, okay? Just think about your week this week. How many times in one day did you make a snap judgment about somebody? Let me give you help. I'm at Quick Trip. I, get, I go to Quick Trip every morning, get my iced tea. And I, here's snap judgment. I'll give you an example because so, you hear from your pastor, I did it more than once. Um, I see a kid who was, I'm old enough now to have that, that, and I looked at the kid and he had, he was buying four Red Bulls and a pack of cigarettes. And I thought, man, dude, you're not going to get to my age if you're doing that. And so I made a snap judgment because I was looking at what he was purchasing and I was thinking, yikes. And I was getting a, I was getting my iced tea. I was thinking I was a lot better than that. So now I want you to think, how many snap judgments have you made this week? Driving too slow. You're getting all that to eat? Look at how much groceries they're buying. Look at, the, look at the weight that that person is carrying. They are way too thin. That color on, their, on her face looks horrible. Look at that outfit. Look at those tattoos. Look at those piercings. Look at those shoes. My daughter's wearing some killer shoes today, and some of y'all are like, I mean, you have to see her because they're, they're like bright. I mean, you got to wear sunglasses when you see those things. Well, we make snap judgments about a lot of people, about a lot of silly things. And I love the video because I think when, we, when we're called to see people, we typically see first judgment and then see the people. And we're like, oh, well, you know, let's, let's take a look at these people. And so Jesus has been giving us a model for the last several weeks about see, we saw first week we talked about Jesus sees sin. He, he sees the sin in our lives. And then the next week we talked about that Jesus sees the idols that are hidden within us, the things that we think are really important, and they become idols to us. And then last week we talked about that Jesus sees our pain. And this week we're going to finish up kind of taking us into the Christmas season is that Jesus sees people. Jesus saw people, and he actually, not only did he see them, but he did something about them. He was, he was engaging to them. And so we're going to be, if you've got your Bibles, go to Matthew chapter 9. We're going to be looking at this for just a moment. And here's what I know about snap judgments that we all make. It says, I've got perfect eyesight when it comes to the people that are most like me. Does that make sense? I got really good eyesight with the people most like me. The people that are least like me, I tend not to see the way that I should. Okay? And you're going to see that play out in this story that we're about to embark on. Now, um, some of you that, if you come, if you're here on my Wednesday night study, I do a, I'm going through the book of Mark, and this particular chapter parallels uh, the book of Mark, chapter 2, pretty well. There's, there's a lot of similarities between the two. Um, and so we're going to take a look at that. But Jesus saw people, regardless of their status, regardless of their gender, regardless of their color, regardless of, of where they lived or where they came from, he saw them and he responded to them. He was beautiful about doing that. And so we're going to look at this idea of as we move into the Christmas season, is are you going to see people? Now, on the back of your insert, and Corey's going to come up in a little while. We're going to talk to you about this thing on the back. You don't have to go there now, 
but we're going to talk about that here in a little bit. And so what I want to do is take you through the book of this chapter of Matthew 9. We're going to do it in kind of bite-sized chunks. We're going to read a little, talk a little, read a little, talk a little, and we'll, we'll get through it pretty well. Um, this kind of jumps in. Jesus is moving around. His ministry is up and flying, um, and it's really going well. He's, people are flocking to him. And let's start in verse uh, 1 of chapter 9 of Matthew, and it says this. It says, And getting into a boat, he crossed over and came to his own city. And behold, some people brought him a paralytic laying on a bed. And when Jesus saw their faith, and we'll come back to that in just a minute, he said to the paralytic, Take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. And behold, some of the scribes said to themselves, This man is blaspheming. But Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, Why do you think evil in your hearts? Which is easier to say, Your sins are forgiven, or to rise, or to say, Rise and walk? But that you may know that the Son of God has authority on heaven to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, Rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose and went home. When the crowd saw, we're going to see two ways to see. You're going to see the way Jesus did, and then you're going to see the way the religious leaders did. And when he saw, or when he rose, he went home, and when the crowd saw it, they were afraid, and they glorified God, who had given such authority, who's given such authority of men, uh, to men. And so Jesus goes to a place, and he's teaching. Now, you have to understand this story, that this is amazing, you got four friends that bring their paralyzed friend to Jesus. And there's really not a way to get in there. If you go to the Mark one, it tells you that they dug a hole. Now, I don't know about you. If somebody dug a hole in your house from the roof down, you might be a little upset. Maybe? Especially if you got a bunch of people there. It, matter of fact, the, if you go to Mark and how this parallels... It was so crowded, they couldn't get him in the typical way through a door. So they go up on top and they start, and start digging. Now, I don't know about you, but did you think that might cause a little distraction? It's a little. And so Jesus is teaching, and these four friends are digging this room. Back then, it would have been like straw and mud, okay? It wasn't like shingles and root, all that kind of stuff. And, and there's stuff falling, okay? And you can think the homeowner's going, I mean, because he's not listening to Jesus, probably. Uh, I've got now a sunlight. This is amazing. I didn't even ask for this. And so all of this is happening. People are now, people are now looking up, and they're going, oh, what a distraction this is. I came to hear Jesus, not these knuckleheads, digging a hole in a roof. Now, look, you got to think about this. We talked about this on Wednesday. Wasn't their faith in, their, in this Jesus extraordinary? It was extraordinary. They, they, bring four, they bring this guy. Now, we talked about this too. Does the paralytic have to have a little bit of faith? A little bit. Because his friends are about to drop him down in front of a whole bunch of other people. That they don't, and this is a humiliating thing. He has had, he has been dependent on everybody else. His friends saw not only the physical ailment of this man, but also the soul of this man. Because let me help you out. A person who's paralyzed can have a lot of sin, can't they? Can they? They can. 
They can have envy and hatred and spite and malice and a whole host of other sins that really start to manifest themselves. Because look at what Jesus, it wasn't the paralytic that was in, that was, Jesus said, I saw their faith. I saw their faith. And so he gets dropped down right in front of Jesus. He can't do anything. He can't do anything. And then look at what Jesus does. Jesus deals with the heart first. He deals with the, the man's heart first. He doesn't do the physical thing first. The, the physical thing's pretty obvious. He can't move. And yet, here he is. Jesus saw their faith that, this, that he could do something. And Jesus says, I'm going to do two things for this man. I'm going to heal his soul first, and then I'll do something about his body. And let me just, I love this, because Jesus says, and, and, and this, this Jesus, when he does this, he is what was so, when, when they use the word blaspheming, you know why they're saying that? It's because this guy was claiming to be God. And that was, that was an inflammatory statement by a human being from, his, from where he came from and his background. See, the, the religious leaders saw his pedigree. They, they looked at the neighborhood in which Jesus came from, and they thought, There's, this guy, really? You're claiming to be God? No, you're not. Well, the first inclination that he is God is he says, why do you think those things in your heart? Because he, could, he knew. That would be a little scary. He knew. And so Jesus says, is it easy to say your sins are forgiven? Or is it easier, is it more amazing to say stand up and go? Because it's easy to say you're forgiven. Does that really demonstrate any real power? No, it doesn't. What he does do is he says, I'm going to show you that this thing works. Your sins are forgiven. Let me also give you a little nugget about the sins are forgiven. When he says that, he is also saying, because you're, you have offended me and the only way you can offend God is if it's against God. And so he's claiming to be God when he says your sins are forgiven because your sins were against me. And so that was equally inflammatory. And so when Jesus is claiming to be God, he says, anybody can say your sins are forgiven. That doesn't require power. But what does, what does need power is to say, get up. And he gets up. His body, when Jesus says get up, that means his body was filled with the ability to get up. If you've, how many of you have ever had, uh, had to rehab your body? And it takes a while, doesn't it? it you just don't, you don't it, it, it doesn't snap your fingers. You've got to work those muscles back again. You've got to get them going. And Jesus says, get up and go. And that means that God, he immediately restored him to get up and go. And we, we talked about this a little bit on Wednesday, but can you imagine that for the first time in his life, he is walking around not with four, but with five people, four friends who brought him. They saw that Jesus could do something in his life, and they brought him to that. And I will tell you a couple things. If you take a note, you, these are free. Qualities of seeing well, we love, we have love, faith, hope, and patience. That's what those four friends brought. They had love, faith, hope, and patience. When we see people like Jesus, determination grows. When we see people like Jesus, determination grows. We're not going to quit just because they said, not this time. I don't really want to go to church. I don't do the church thing or uh, I, whatever. They didn't quit. I mean, they couldn't get in the front door, so they just dug a hole. Doesn't that show you determination? Because they believed, as we should, that, 
there is no person that God can't reach. God can deal with the root. God, is, let me just help you, help you out. Jesus is always going to deal with the root issue of any of us, and that's sin. Because a paralytic had a lot of sin, and he dealt with that first. And he's always going to do that first before he deals with the other ancillary things. And I love that. Bob Goff, who wrote a couple of great books just about God and people, and this was out of um, Love Does, and he said this. He says, we become in our lives what we do with our love. Those who are becoming loved don't throw people off roofs. They lower them through it. And I just think that's a beautiful thing. And so Jesus sees them, and he does all this. Now, this, you would think that the, that the religious leaders would be like, wow, this guy's God. Instead, they chafe. They get more upset. So let's keep reading. Verse 9. As Jesus passed on from there, look at what Jesus did. It says, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at a tax booth, and he said to him, follow me. These were the same words he used with his disciples who were fishermen. And he rose and followed him. And as Jesus reclined at a table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. This is an amazing thing because tax collectors in that day typically were of your own descent. They were just like you, but they had the power to extort from you. So if Justin is a tax collector and he and I are family, we live in the same neighborhood, Rome says, here's the percent we want, and you can take whatever you want too. And you're going to have the Roman guard at your disposal in case you need extra. So do you think corruption was prominent? Yes, it was. How do we know this? Because whenever you see tax collectors and sinners, do the math. <laughs> their, their offense was tremendous. They were stealing from their own people, and they could because they had Rome backing them. So Rome said, get whatever, we, whatever I want, but whatever you want, that's up to you. And so he was despised. He was like a leper. No one wanted to be his friend because he could extort from them. But Jesus saw something else. Jesus saw a man. He became one of his guys. You're like, none of us would pick this guy. I'm just going to help you out. You would not pick this person to be on the ministry staff team of a church. You're an extorter. Jesus saw beyond all of that. The religious leaders, though, were really chafing about this. Because he said, follow me, and I love this. Redeem people, redeem people throw parties. Redeem people... Jesus redeems him, and he invites some tax collectors and other sinners to his house where Jesus is, and it says that many were there. Je they were attracted to the Jesus because Jesus actually saw them. He actually saw them. I mean, not like a glance. He actually saw into their lives, and he, he put them in an environment, and he saw them. He saw them. And, and it was, it's so important because look at what verse 11 says. It says, and when the Pharisees... Saw. The way you see people depends on which lens you look through. If you look through your own lens, you're going to see people differently than the way Jesus does. When the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when he heard it, he said, Those who are well have no need of a physician. 
but those who are sick. Look at what he says in verse 13. He goes, you might need to go back and look at your own scripture because there's something that says about this. He says, go and learn what it means. Ouch. Go and learn what it means because then he quotes out of, out of Hosea 6.6. 6. He says, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. You know what he's saying there? He says, don't bring me your, your religious sacrifices and make it look like you're spiritual because your sacrifice, you're hiding behind your sacrifices and your mercy is not there. And I remember this story vividly. When I was a youth pastor a long time ago, um, I went, uh, I was in Augusta, and I met, met students at their, at their lunchroom and used to go and just hang out with them. And um, I told them I was coming, and so we, we went, and they had, like we do on Wednesday nights, they had these big circle tables. And we plopped down at a circle table, and there was one kid sitting over at that end of the circle table. And there was like, I think about six of us. And we went around kind of in a, almost a, a fool, covered the table. And so that kid was sitting, when we got there, he was sitting by himself when we arrived. And so we all kind of got down, and he was the only, there were kids from him all the way around. And so we're talking about this and that, and, and, and about, after about 10 minutes, I looked at the kids on my left and my right, and I said, do you know who he is? And they said, yeah, we do. We just don't normally sit here. I said, why? He said, he always sits here by himself every lunch period. I said, why? He said, no one talks to him. I said, why? And then the, the kids around went. And so I looked over at the kid and I said, what's your name? He said, my name is Mark. I said, why do you sit here by yourself? He said, no one wants to sit with me. What, because he looked a little different? He didn't look any different than the kids that were sitting around the table. Do you know what was more tragic in that moment? Is the kids around there, all church kids, were perceiving that because he was sitting by himself that we shouldn't sit there because maybe there's, maybe it might affect us in our reputation or our popularity in school. The reason that the religious people didn't want to be with tax collectors and sinners is because it didn't want to taint their relationship or their standing. They might be affected by being with tax collectors and sinners. And I'll never forget that story that I looked at the kids around me and I, just, I shook my head and said, guys, I said, this is what we're supposed to be about. This is what we're supposed to be about. That kid should never, ever sit at lunch by himself ever again. And the tax collectors and the sinners were so isolated from the religious people of that day that they knew that they couldn't even get a conversation with them because they felt like they might be infected. And see, self-righteousness is this amazing thing. When we don't see well, here's a couple things. When we don't see well, I'm, I'm self-righteous, I'm rigid, I'm graceless, and people become projects, okay? When we start to see more like the religious leaders, we become more self-righteous, more rigid, more graceless, and people, oh, man, I don't want to invite them to church. That's going to be so much work. They've got so much going on. Oh, it's just easier if they just don't show up. I don't know how we can think that way, but we do. 
and I will give you some really important information. You are not condoning sin by keeping company with sinners. Hear me on that. You're not condoning someone's sin just because you hang out with them. Because if that's true, this room has to be empty. Make sense? We're all sinners in here. If that is true, and what the religious people were saying is, well, then you can't be around sinners, then we're going to have lots of me, myself, and I churches. Jesus sat down with tax collectors and prostitutes and the people who were pushed aside by their culture as throwaways, and he said, those are the people, I'm the hospital for those people. Those people are people. I see them. They're important to me. And so the next thing is this, verse 14 says, Then the disciples of John came to him saying, why do, we, why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and they will fast. No one puts a, a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch tears away from the garment, and the worse the tear is made. Neither is new wine put in old wineskins. If it is, the skins burst and the wine is spilled and the skins are destroyed. New wine must be put in fresh skins and so both are preserved. What Jesus was saying there, he was, he was referencing that he is the bridegroom and that the bridegroom's not staying forever, that they're going to arrest him, that they're going to get rid of him, that they're going to kill him, and that they're going to mourn at an appropriate time. They're going to fast at the right time. And what he was telling the religious leaders about old wineskin and new, in that culture, they would put wine in, in wine in skin, like they would take a like goat skins, and they would form a bag. Well, old wine skins, they would set it aside, and it would ferment, and it would make the bag expand because of the gases in it. And they said, if you take that old bag and you put new wine skin, it'll burst because it can't stretch any more than it is. And he was saying that you can't, you can't take all of your religious rules and follow me and put them into your old bag. It's not going to work. Something's going to give. And he was telling the religious leaders and his disciples that that old life has got to go. If you're going to follow me, the rules, the rules, hear me on this, the rules were always, always designed to point you to the fact you need Jesus. They are guardrails. They're not saviors. They were designed to say, I can't do this. I can't follow all the rules to earn my salvation. The only way I can get there is to surrender my life to Christ. And Jesus saw them and he was trying to help them. It was funny because we think that Jesus, Jesus was trying to help them see too. And boy, they didn't. When we keep our rules and traditions and our perceptions with the message of Jesus and all sides whites, because they just it eventually just breaks. It doesn't work. And so He's not done yet. It, th- this story is a lot like Mark. It's kind of rapid fire. We just get one story after the next, and he says this in verse 18. He says, while we were saying these things to them, behold, a ruler, this means somebody in authority, that means somebody who had knowledge, um, who had power. He says, a ruler came and knelt before him. This is powerful. A ruler came and knelt before him. Um, does he realize that this is Jesus? The religious people didn't. There would have been some head scratching going on, by the way. My daughter has just died, but come and lay your hand on her, and she will live. That's some crazy faith. And Jesus rose and followed him 
with his disciples. And behold, a woman who had suffered from discharge of blood for 12 years came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment. And when she said to herself, if only I touch his garment, I will be made well. It's interesting because Jesus is going with this ruler immediately. When last week we looked at with Mary and Martha, he waited several days. Both instances are opportunities for him to display that he is the Son of God. And so he is on his way with this rich ruler, not because he's a rich ruler. Let me just help you clarify there. It's not because the rich ruler came and asked me, so, oh, I will go. So he's on his way, and he's got a woman who has her own affliction. It's a lot like leprosy. If you go to an Old Testament, her discharge is keeping her from everybody. She's considered unclean. And so she is desperate. And so she just thinks almost a little bit faith and a little bit superstition. If I just touch his cloak, maybe, maybe. But she has enough faith to do something crazy. And as Jesus passes by, look what happens. He says, if only I would touch his garment, I will be made well. And look at, look at verse 22. Jesus saw, then look at what happens in verse 20, 22. Jesus turned seeing her. Jesus is a master at seeing people. Take heart, daughter. Look at, look at what he calls her. He didn't call her woman. He calls her daughter. He calls her something personal. Take heart, daughter. Your faith, your faith has made you well. And instantly the woman was made well, just like the paralytic. And when Jesus came to the ruler's house, he saw the flute players and the crowd making commotion. Now when somebody died, there was a kind of a, like a wedding, there was this big party of wailing and moaning and just, woe is me. It was pretty depressing, but that was kind of what they did. That was their culture. Jesus saw that and he, you know what? Jesus is not a real fan of death. He's not a real fan of death. Because he knows, he knows what's coming for him. And he knows that if people have the right relationship with him, there is life. He saw this commotion. He said, he said, go away from the girl. Go away from the girl. It is not dead, but sleeping. And they laugh at him. But when the crowd had been put outside, he went back in, took her by the hand, and the girl arose. And the report of this went through all the district. No kidding. So he's raised, he's healed two people, and he's raised somebody from the dead. I think that's a God you can lean in on and trust. And it's a God that sees people. And I love this because Jesus not only didn't look at the status of people, he just saw people. The rich young ruler, or the rich ruler, he goes with, and a woman who is probably ostracized, he stops and sees. See, folks, the most important thing that we do is see people and then meet their need by pointing them to Jesus. Jesus modeled that compassion is more important than following the letter of the law. One of the things that they really chafed about with the religious is that he wasn't doing things the certain way. He was healing people on the Sabbath. I mean, you're not supposed to do that. You're supposed to follow the letter of the law. Paul talked about this in Romans really well in Romans chapter 14 because he said there are disputable things and indisputable things. Okay? Disputable things are what attire we wear on Sunday morning. Disputable, are ind- uh, disputable things are what color the carpet. Indisputable things are that we have this Jesus is the Son of God. 
this is his holy word. He arose again. He was sinless. Does that make sense? And so the religious leaders were hung up on disputable things. They were, and, they, and they were making that indisputable things. And Jesus was trying to help them see that. They didn't want to see it. And so we see that in verse 27 as we finish this out. And as Jesus passed on from there, rapid fire again, two blind men followed him crying out, Have mercy on us, son of David. And when he entered the house, the blind man came to him, and Jesus said to them, Do you believe that I am able to do this? And they said to him, Yes, Lord. And he touched their eyes, saying, According to your faith, be done to you. And their eyes were open. And Jesus sternly warned them, See that you say nothing to to anybody about this. And it's funny. Every time Jesus told them not to say anything, they did, except for the demons that he cast out. And it says, and they went away and spread his and his and his and his fame spread through all the district. And they were going away. Behold, a demon possessed man who was mute was brought to him. And when the demon had been cast out, the mute man spoke, and the crowd marvelled, saying, "Never have we seen anything like this in Israel." But the Pharisees said, "He cast out demons by the prince of demons." And I love the translation I read in this. This is the full extent of their rejection of of Jesus. They're claiming that he's a demon to cast out a demon, which, okay, really? And Jesus went through all the cities and villages teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. And verse 36, folks, as we move towards Christmas, you ought to just take this little passage and just kind of memorize it, put it somewhere where you can see it for your, yourself. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. And that idea is a deep, a deep inner mercy for those people. When you see people at the middle school, at the high school, at the college, at the work, they're not project, they're people. And they need Jesus. They're floundering. They're, they're lost. And look at what he says. He says they're, they're without... Sh- see, one of the things you need to see yourself that maybe you don't is you are a shepherd to some people. You are a shepherd. Go read Psalms 23, verses 1 through 6. You're a shepherd to people. You help them. You guide them. You strengthen them. You help them to see where they're going that they shouldn't be going. He says, and when he said this to the disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly that God of harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. We read that and we agree with that. But just think about this for just a second. If you invited one person, one person in here, we would have to use the balcony. One person. One person. On the back of your sheet is a thing called the family tree. And Corey and I were talking about this. And I want you to see how this family tree thing can work by inviting one person. Corey, come up here. So, yeah. Uh, Danny and I were talking about this on Monday. We were trying to figure out a way to kind of give you a visual. And so... I have, uh, last summer we had this sixth grade, she was a sixth grade girl, she was relatively pretty new. This is her first time coming, and some of you may know her, but 
Her name is Kaylin. Some of you know who Kaylin is. I'm going to write her name on here. And we're going to see kind of the family tree that, if you can't read my handwriting, I'm sorry, it's awful. But Kaylin invited one person. I think it was like her first month in youth group, she invited one person. And that she invited Kenna. Now, Kenna, when we first met her, was very, very quiet. She is not that way now. Um, And so Kenna then invited another person. Now, Kenna invited someone in her own household, her sister, to come. Ashlyn. Ashlyn started coming. Now, here's the cool part, is it could have stopped there. But Ashlyn then invited Aubrey. So, then Aubrey has been inviting one of her friends, and her, her name is Jocelyn. Jocelyn has been off and on, but Aubrey has invited Jocelyn. Now, the other cool thing is, I just realized this this morning, three out of the five people on this list have gotten baptized. Three of them. And what's also awesome is some of their parents are coming. Because it all started with a sixth-grade girl inviting her friend to church. And so it's super important that just, just that we see that it just takes us to invite people. Just one person. And we can see how that family tree happens with sixth-grade girls. And so, I mean... Last one, this Wednesday, we, as a students, decided to pray for one person. The one person that we want to invite to church sometime in the next, during this Christmas or Advent season. And so, the next two weeks, we're all, all the students are praying for their one person. And then they also got this awesome little gift tag that I got them. And they wrote the name down. They wrote their name, they wrote the person's name, and I challenged them to take this name, this name tag and to tape it on a mirror, tape it on a door, tape it wherever they see themselves the most, or they can put a note on their phone, or, or like I do, I put an alarm on my phone for 7.14 in the morning, and I pray for that person who, who I've been inviting and who I want to come, and I begin praying for that person. Now, it doesn't just stop with praying. It starts with inviting. We've got to invite them. We've got to be bold. We've got to invite the people because it's, it's hard to invite people because we're afraid to say no. We're, we're scared that they're going to say no. But if we're afraid they're going to say no, then we're not going to invite them. So it just, starts with, it just starts with an invite. And I know each one, each one of those five girls continues to invite people. And I know they continually get said no. But they continue to invite people. They're very, very bold. And so I want to challenge you to... Be praying for that person. Be praying for that one. We all have that one person. I'll tell you mine. Mine, mine, mine is named Riley. I work with Riley. I invite him every single Thursday. He hasn't come, but I continue to invite him. Because I know that he needs to come. I know he needs to be invited. So I'm going to have you, you can finish it out. Thank you, Thank you Corey. Um, when I was the youth pastor here, I, I, I led had the privilege of leaving a, a young man, his name was Kenny Waddell, to the Lord on a Wednesday night. Um, right after Wednesday night was over, he came, he was hungry for the Word of God, and it, 
um, it's an amazing journey because that boy um, is now the principal at a Central Christian's middle school. Okay? Now, I would have not thought he would ever do that as a high school. He was one of the most popular kids at Derby when I was the youth pastor here. Three-star athlete, played baseball for Wichita State. Uh, he was primo. And, but God got a hold of him. And when I go, I'm speaking at his, they have a chapel service um, every day. And in January, I'll be speaking at it again. And every time I come and speak, I speak at it once a year. He says, this guy led me to the Lord. He tells those middle school boys and girls every year. And, and when I stand there and I look at that, my family tree just with Kenny is amazing because I can put Kenny right here and I can see the branches of him teaching kids about Jesus through one kid. Folks, it is powerful. What Corey said, it is powerful through one kid, through one adult. There are adults in here that were invited by somebody else. Am I right? It's how it works. You were invited. You, were, you think that what Jesus is about is so worth it, I'm going to invite them. We're about to celebrate the, the birth of our Savior. And Corey talked about this. We, we did this campaign last year, and we left them up intentionally. Who's your one? Not ten, not five. One. One person that you're going to pray for, that you're going to invite, that you're going to say, you ought to come and hear about this new series that we're about to launch next week and hear what God's got for you. When you leave here today, your natural inclination is to make snap judgments about people. The waiter's too slow. The waiter didn't hear me. They're driving too fast. They're eating too much. They're too noisy. They're too this. And we need to spend more time saying, God, is that a person I could invite? Is that a person that you're laying the pathway for me to invite them to church, to invite them to you? See people. Jesus gave you, gave you and I a model to see people, not status, not color, not gender. See people and do something about it. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for students, and I thank you for adults who have seen people, and they've done something. Not only did they see them, they said, I'm going to invite them to this Jesus that I know. And God, we say thank you that we have three students who know you as Lord and Savior because they were seen by a friend who invited them to hear more about this Jesus. And God, Christmas is really an easy time to invite people. It's more natural, and I pray that that becomes more commonplace for us, that how people come to our church isn't necessarily through another means, but through primarily through inviting. If you said in Mark chapter 9 that the harvest is plentiful, that hasn't changed in 2,000 years. It is still plentiful today. God, help us to have hearts to see people like you, not as projects. And they may dress differently than us. They may look differently than us. They may have different political views. They may have different religious views. But they, those things can't get changed if we don't point them to the Savior who can. 
And I ask God that for the next few moments that we would begin praying to see people the way that you do. It's in your name that I pray. Amen. I'm going to ask you to stand. Maybe you want to use this as an altar.